Second Timothy chapter four. Verse one. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Father, as we study now, We ask Your Spirit to teach us. I pray, Father, we would receive the truth of Your Word this morning as from Your Spirit and not as from a man, a preacher, a teacher. But Lord, may we hear what You have to say to the church this morning. And I pray that Your words will be crystal clear because our ears are wide open. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you look back at chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says, You, however, speaking to Timothy as he is throughout this letter, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The sacred writings to which Paul appealed were the Hebrew Scriptures primarily. Although as we talked about Wednesday night, some of the New Testament letters were already considered inspired by this time, by 67 AD. They were already being circulated. But primarily when the Scriptures were mentioned, were spoken of, it was the Hebrew Scriptures. No less inspired than how we would today view the New Testament Sadly, the church today looks at the Old Testament and thinks of it as passé, which is, and the New Testament, well, that's the inspired word. No, it's the whole book. Genesis to Revelation. But when Paul makes this comment, when he says the, the sacred writings, he's indicating primarily the Hebrew Scriptures, and the Hebrew Scriptures are filled, were filled, with indications and anticipations of Messiah. It's the whole reason they were written. It's not a history book. It's not God's way of saying, here's Israel, take a look. It's a call to the preparation of the coming of Messiah. And He came. And He appeared precisely as prophesied. Just run through a few of them with me, if you will. Genesis 3.15, all the way back in the garden, God said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Two thousand years would go by, and old Jacob on his deathbed, 
would speak these words, Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Another 500 years went by. The children of Israel are in the wilderness and a sycophantic prophet was called upon to call curses down on them, but he couldn't do it. His name was Balaam. And up on a mountainside, looking down over Israel as he's trying to curse, but only blessing is coming out of his mouth, he said in Numbers 24:17, I see him, but not now. I behold him. But not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. Prophecy of the coming Messiah. Psalm 22 verse 9. David speaking by the very Spirit of Christ. You are He who brought me forth from the womb. The me in that prophecy is not David, but Jesus. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1, later on he shall make glorious by way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Isaiah continues in verse 6 of Isaiah 9, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Isaiah is the messianic prophet of all of them. He says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Again indicating, speaking of the Messiah. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 22, the prophet said, The Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman will encompass a man. Which is an interesting prophecy because that's not really a new thing up to that point. You know, all men were born of woman, so all men had at one time been encompassed by their mother. But this is indicating a birth that would be special, unique. A birth that would happen, you know, in a little town called Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. This one will be our peace. (coughs) Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy of the coming of Jesus. The guarantee Messiah is going to come into this world. He will appear. And so in Bethlehem, Jesus was born. Eight days later, Joseph and Mary made the six-mile trek up to Jerusalem. Let me clarify, up to Jerusalem. Someone caught me last Sunday. I said they went down to Jerusalem. You never go down to Jerusalem. You only always go up to Jerusalem in the Scriptures. Well, that's what Joseph and Mary did. From Bethlehem up to Jerusalem to to bring Jesus to the temple, to make the necessary sacrifices, and to, to show Him there before the priests. And as they came into the temple, another prophecy was fulfilled. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into His temple. And so He did. Suddenly, there He was. But who 
could have known? Who could have had any idea on the day of the dedication of this little baby that Messiah had entered into the temple courts? I mean, think about it. The very idea, the infinite, an infant, omnipotence in a onesie. How does this work? But there were those in Jerusalem, in the temple courts, anticipating His appearing. If you'll look back at Luke chapter 2, Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 2, verse 25. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Shimon, in Hebrew. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God. Now, now pause for a moment. Shimon and Joseph and Mary were not relatives. We're unlikely even friends didn't know each other. This, this elderly gentleman comes walking up and takes the baby right out of their hands and begins blessing God, saying in verse 29, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your Yeshua. The Hebrew word for salvation. You wonder if Joseph was going, how did he know his name was Jesus? My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples. A light of revelation to the Gentiles, Isaiah. And the glory of your people, Israel. Verse 33, and his father and his mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Shimon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Shimon, old Saint Shimon, who was loving the appearing of Jesus. Looking for, anticipating his coming. And then there was a prophetess, verse 36. Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple. Serving night and day with fastings and prayers. 84 year olds don't ever think you're done. Okay, look at Anna. And there she is at that very moment, verse 38. She came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. See, that's what you do when you love His appearing. You just keep serving night and day. You keep looking. You keep expecting. Like Shimon, like Anna. Who, by the Spirit of God, and I would say by the Scriptures themselves, the sacred writings, were expecting the coming. Because the Bible said He would come. And they took God at His word. And they assumed that if God says He's going to send Messiah, Messiah will come. 
But had the ancient prophets not preached the word in season, out of season, reproving, rebuking, exhorting with great patience and instruction, and had no one paid attention to what the old prophets had written, no one would have been waiting. 4,000 years of foretelling. And we see two people in the temple looking for it. And that seems an awful lot like the days in which we live. So many people missed His first coming. So many people still miss His first coming and will not be ready for His second. Paul's at the end of his life and so Paul writes... With passion and heart, he writes to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Those should be in bold in your Bibles. Highlighted, circled, starred, underlined, whatever you have to do. Preach the Word. This is as serious as it gets with the Apostle. The old Paul charges the young pastor Timothy with this most solemn injunction. And note right off the bat that it's held up by four pillars of preaching. Number one, immediacy. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. In other words, God was immediately present. Paul had an assumption that right there, right then... God was there. Jesus was there. Present. Even as this solemn charge is being made, I charge you in their presence. The immediacy of God. Do you live with that immediacy? Do we think about how present He really is? Moment by moment in our lives. Right here, right now. Can I get a witness? Because the witness is God Himself. The one who sees what happens in our lives is Christ Jesus. Emmanuel still means God with us. I've shared before, I think of my wife when she first walked into a a Bible study of a Calvary Chapel group in a living room. Back when she was a teenager. She told me this and I remember feeling the same way that she felt when she shared this story. She said, I walked in and sat down and they were singing and they were praying. And she said, it was so different Because they acted like He was there. They talked to Him as if He was right there. She said, I wanted that. I wanted to be part of that, to recognize the immediacy of God. And that's exactly what Paul appeals to here. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. And that is so encouraging to me, because guess what? You are never alone. When you give your life to Jesus, He does not depart. He doesn't leave you, and He doesn't send you out solo. Paul's about to say, preach the Word. And this idea of the immediacy of God supports the preaching of the Word because He doesn't send out lone wolf evangelists. He doesn't say, here's my Word, go preach it, and I'll see you at the end of the track. If you get through. If you hang in there, maybe, maybe I'll catch up with you. The immediacy 
of the Great Commission. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. I thank Jesus that He said that. That last verse. Because He doesn't send us out on our own. He is immediately present. Preach the Word. He's here. Preach the Word. He is with you. He is with me. And so the first pillar on preaching the Word is the immediacy. The the, the second one is judiciary. Note this. Who is to judge the living and the dead. Why should I preach the Word? Well, because the Word is going to judge the living and the dead. There's some impetus there. Jesus will do it. Jesus said in John 5.22, Not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Which means that the consummation of all things, at the end of all things, not even the Father judges, it's Jesus. He's judge, He is defense, He is prosecutor, and He is jury. His is the final word. He will deliver the sentence, the verdict. He has the last word. Now, Lawrence O'Donnell thinks he has the last word. He's a commentator on MSLSD, MSNBC. I'm sorry. A few years ago on his show, it was March actually of 2011, I know because I notated it, wrote it down. He said the following. The book of Revelation is a work of fiction describing how a truly vicious God would bring about the end of the world. No half-smart religious person actually believes the book of Revelation anymore. They are certain that their God would never turn into a malicious torturer and mass murderer beyond Hitler's wildest dreams. Well, then I'm a fool for Christ because I believe it. O'Donnell completely misses the point with, by the way, stunning ignorance. The point is, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave Him to show His bondservants the things which must soon take place. It's about revelation. It's about letting people know, look, this is coming. This will happen. Well, why would God do that? Why would God reveal something as striking as the judgments in the book of Revelation 2,000 years ago and then sit on it for this long? And I'll give you the answer in one word, love. If He didn't give the revelation and then did all the things that we know are written in that book, that could be compared to Hitler. But see, love always warns. Love always says, you have a choice here. And if you choose this, oh, it's going to be good and and blessed and we'll be together and we'll have joy eternally. But if you choose this, this is what will happen. I love you too much not to tell you or to avoid telling you about the negative. I have to let you know. That's what love does. That's what God has done. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so that idea of the judgment, the judiciary, 
that Christ is the whole package is because God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 But make no mistake, God will have the last word. Jesus, who is the word, is the final word, and He will judge the living and the dead. Psalm 96 reads, verse 12, Let the field exult and all that is in it. And then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for He is coming. He's coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. You know what? He has to. He has to judge the living and the dead. He must. Why? Because if God did not judge sin then all of the people of all history would stand up and be shouting out three words, that's not fair. You see, we want everybody else judged. I got no problem with y'all being judged for your sins and your transgressions. Sinners. Just don't judge me. We all want justice. We all want righteousness to prevail. And it will. He will judge the living and the dead. And at the end of all things, oh, you know, you Bible students, we will be singing a joyful chorus in heaven. We are recorded singing this song in Revelation 19, which is so cool. If you ever wonder, hey, did I make it in the Bible? You did. Revelation 19, verse 1, John says, After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. And we will sing that before the Lord. So what? So preach the Word. Preach the Word. Because of the immediacy of God the Father and of Christ Jesus. Because of the judiciary, which is Jesus. Lock, stock, and barrel, the whole deal. Pillar number three. Imminency. Imminency. And by His appearing. Now, you could say, well, is Paul referring to His first appearing or His second appearing? And I would say, yes! In His first appearing, because He has come, preach this word... But Paul always leans to the future. Always leans to what is coming. And so when he says, I charge you by His appearing, His imminency, He is soon to come. He will be here at any time. Preach the Word. Every holiday season it comes around and we say, you're going to have friends and family who don't know Jesus. Preach the Word. And you're like, Rick, you don't understand how dysfunctional my family is. How funky it would be if I just start talking about Jesus around the Christmas tree. Preach the Word. There may not be a next Christmas. His coming is imminent. Paul said in Romans 13.11, It is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. He said that 2,000 years ago. You think it was near then? How close? How soon? Jesus left it hanging out there. I I am so thankful for this. He left the imminency of His return just kind of out there. He never gave us the date. He didn't say, on this time, at this age, I will show up. At the end of the last days, I'll be there. He says, I'm coming soon. Yes, I am coming quickly, Revelation 22, verse 20 says. 
And John says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. And he doesn't give us a date because he wants us to live every day as if that is the day. As if he will come that day. Which has a dramatic impact on how you live your life. If we are loving his appearing, if we're thinking about that, aware of it, Of course, there are those who say, well, if His coming is so soon, yes, I'm coming quickly, why is He taking so long? Jesus said in Matthew 24, 44, For this reason you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think. How many of you think He'll be here before I'm done this morning? Okay, you all just made that much more possible. (laughs) 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow about His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So what? So preach the Word. Preach the Word. By the way, how do you feel about His eminency? I'm not talking about His eminency as as in, you know, royalty. How do you feel about the imminent return of Jesus? That, That it could be today. See, there are those who are excited. I'm one of them. There are those who get a shiver up the spine. There are others who say, eh, dismissing it because, you know, it's been so long and mockers come with their mocking, as the Bible said would happen. The Lord is not slow about His promise. Think about how you feel about His appearing. I want to come back to that in a minute. Pillar number four for why we should preach the Word is certainty. Certainty. By His appearing and His kingdom. Certainty. There are not many things we can count on today, but you can take all of these to the bank and beyond the grave. God is immediate. Christ is the entire judicial system. His coming is imminent and His kingdom will most certainly be established. So preach the Word. Share the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us, Isaiah 9-7, I know you've heard it. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Hebrews 12-28, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, note that, it cannot be shaken. This is a kingdom that cannot be done away with cannot be set aside, cannot be halted in its coming. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Let me give you three words that define or describe or convey an acceptable service. Ready? Preach the Word. That is your acceptable service today. Now, here's the problem. I'm a preacher. I get it. It's my job. It's what what Rick does. And so anytime I say something that bugs you or challenges you, as it does me at the same time, by the way, but anytime I speak something from up here that makes people a little uncomfortable, they can very quickly just say, oh, well, he's the preacher. It's what he does. Of course he's going to say something like that. That's his job. That's why they pay him the big bucks. Because that's what he's supposed to do. And it gets dismissed. And I pray against that. I, I, I really do. I, I struggle with this personally. 
that I not be seen as any different. As much an idiot, if not more so, than anyone here. Did he just call me an idiot? No, I didn't. But that what what the Lord teaches you, that you understand He's teaching me. And that we're walking this out together. And, And there's nothing in the Scriptures that we've studied or looked at that is any different for me than it is for you. Oh, but He's the preacher. No! We are the preachers, all of us. This injunction to preach the Word is not for a select few over all of history. It is for all of us. It is something that we share. You might say, but I'm no preacher. Besides the fact, people don't want to be preached at. Yeah, you know what? I didn't want to have surgery either. I really didn't. But I had a segment of my body that was diseased and had to be dealt with. And we're walking around in a world of people who are diseased unto death. And you have the cure. Preach the Word. And if the word preach is a problem for you, that's fine. Don't use that. Just use the word declare. Declare the Word. The word preach there in verse 2 is caruso, which means to declare, to herald, or to proclaim. That's all we're talking about. Just herald the Word of God. Share it. Talk to people about it. Invite people to know Jesus. It's so simple and it's for all of us. Verse 2, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. He gives five imperatives there. Note that. Preach the Word is a command. Be ready is a command. Reprove, command, rebuke, command, exhort, command. Paul's in an imperative mood as he says these things. You remember Paul's description of his own work? In chapter 1, verse 11, he said, The gospel for which I was appointed, a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. Now Timothy could hear Paul say these things and go, Oh yeah, well Paul, that's just what you do. No, this is what we do. This is for all of us. Paul was a preacher, and could Paul preach? I mean, people were falling out of windows to hear him. Remember Eutychus? It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I love telling it. Acts chapter 20, verses 7 through 12, and you can read it another time. But Paul and Timothy are on their last night in Troas. They're up on the third floor in this room together, and we're told in that chapter that Paul prolonged his message until midnight. I'm going to do it one of these Wednesdays. You'll know long about 10.45, you'll be going, He's going. this is it, he's going for it, call people. He's going to midnight. Paul just preaches on and on and on. The Bible tells us the oil lamps were burning in the room. Now, if you've ever been in a room filled with oil lamps burning, you know after a while your eyes start to burn as well. And there's smoke. No doubt it was warm in that upper room. We know that because a young man named Eutychus is sitting in the cool breeze of the window getting away from the smoke and and trying his best to stay awake, but he sank into, the Bible says, a deep sleep. He didn't just doze off. He was in full rim. Okay, In the window, and out he goes, three stories, bam, dead. Paul's preaching was knocking him dead. Could Paul preach? Paul runs downstairs, throws himself on the boy, and raises him up alive. 
And they'd all go back upstairs and had a bite to eat and no doubt a good laugh. And then the Bible tells us that Paul went on preaching until daybreak. I'm going to do it. He just didn't stop. Why? Paul got it. Paul got it. Preach the Word. And I can tell you, I highly doubt Paul was up there reading chicken soup for the soul. (laughs) In this solemn charge, Paul equates the Word that we preach with three things. In verse 3, he calls it sound doctrine. In verse 4, he calls it the truth. And in verse 7, he calls it the faith. Sound doctrine, the truth, the faith. And in these last days, in my opinion, the emphasis on these things is severely lacking. The emphasis on the Word of God in the church is so missing. Verse 3, Paul says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Just sit on that for a minute. What a statement. The word endure is anachromai and it means to put up with. They're not going to put up with sound doctrine anymore. It's a different word, endure there. They will not endure sound doctrine. It's different than the word endure down in verse 5 when Paul tells Timothy endure hardship. That endure is suffer. Suffer hardship. But up here in verse 3, they will not endure sound doctrine. They just won't put up with it. And you can read it today, and this has been going on for years now, church ministry, magazines, and now websites that declare the days of the weekly Bible study in the church are done. They're over. Why? Because people just won't put up with it. And because church leadership's recognizing that, well, there are fewer people here on Wednesdays, maybe we should do something else. And cut out Bible study altogether. I'll tell you this here at the bridge. If two people are here, me and one other person, then Jesus is here and we will have midweek Bible study. I would love the entire church to be here every Wednesday night packing this hall because it's so important to us. But I'll take one. Me and Glenn. I'll take three. Me, Glenn, and Rachel because she has to be here leading worship. The church has given this up. According to one statistic, listen to this, 3% of evangelical churches in America offer midweek Bible studies. Oh, I'm sorry, that statistic is from some old notes of mine. That was 20 years ago. How much more today? And what is offered is Bible light at best. And what's the result of all this refusal? The Bible study, that all this, this setting aside is unnecessary, unimportant. Hey, you know what? I know. I know something happens. I know there are times when people will show up on a Wednesday night after a long day of work and they will fight staying awake all through the teaching. And they'll go home and go, boy, maybe I should just go home after work. And they'll think that they actually didn't get anything. We gotta understand. Paul says preach the Word because this Word is living and active. You may miss 59 minutes out of 60 minutes on a Wednesday night, but that one minute gets into your heart and God begins to do something. And you don't even know what's going on. 
That sounds magical, Rick. Well, no, it's not magic. It's the Spirit. It is supernatural. He does stuff that we don't even know He's doing. Right now, He's doing things in your heart you don't even know. I think that's marvelous because it's going to show up a week, two, a month down the line. If the Lord waits, a year from now, suddenly you're doing something. You're like, why, why am I acting this way in such a positive... I mean, this person was such a jerk to me, but I'm, why am I... And, and, and you won't even know, and God will know, it was that Sunday morning... When I dropped that seed of my word into your heart, it germinated and took effect and changed you. You don't even know what happened. But we say, ah, I'm busy. I got so much going on. Followers of Jesus are putting their hands to the plow and looking everywhere but straight ahead. Is that us? Is that this fellowship? And what's the result? Of not putting up with, not enduring sound doctrine. I'll tell you, Amos chapter 8 verse 11. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People are going to be starving. And people will stagger from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. And I've talked with many people. In the last decade alone, so many people have said, I have looked all over for a Bible teaching church. I can't find one. That's because the churches have dismissed it. And when you live in our country, when only 3% or less now of evangelical churches offer it, no wonder people are starving. No wonder the Word is not being found. Precious family, please hear me on this. If we are too busy to gather for worship and the Word more than one time a week, we are too busy. But it's worse than just scheduling conflicts. Paul goes on and says, wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. They want to have their ears tickled. It's knatho in the Greek. It means to scratch an itch. Got an itch. I just need scratching. It's like bears against a tree. Oh, that feels good. And seven times in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not what some Yahoo comes up with in his latest book to make a lot of extra money off evangelicals. Romans 10.16 tells us faith comes from hearing and hearing by the latest by Max Lucado. (laughs) I love Max, by the way. I love his books. I'm going to say something here, so don't misunderstand me. Christian books from the Christian bookstores can be very helpful in our walk of faith. But if that's where you're getting your information and not here, that is the Word of God, then you're getting secondary at best. And it is not the Word of Life that can change you, unless, of course, it's quoting Scripture, in which case then you're getting some Word of Life. You know what troubles me more than any other issue... I was going to say as a pastor in America, I'll say it this way, as a Christian in America, is the amount of pointless featherweight drivel coming out of so many pulpits. And what a lot of folks don't even realize is a new book comes out, and a pastor grabs hold of it and goes, oh good, this is my preaching series for the next six months. And it wasn't even written by Jesus. Pastors do entire series as if it were the latest key to life. This is the one... 
It's going to be good. John 6.63, Jesus said it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are Spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe, and that's the problem. There are so many who don't believe. If we believed this word to be spirit and life, if we believed this book to be the very words of Christ Jesus Himself, we wouldn't just be preaching through the night. We would be unstoppable. Everywhere we went, we'd have this in hand. Everyone we talked to, we would be preaching the word. And so Paul is imperative. He says, be ready. In season, out of season. In other words... Whether or not it's convenient, be ready. He says reprove, which is to correct those in error. And guess what? We all get in error from time to time. We all do. I need the correction. He says rebuke, which is to convict those who have become comfortable with sin. He says exhort, which is to comfort those who are suffering. And I like this, he adds, thankfully he adds, with great patience and instruction. Just when I'm getting all fired up. With great patience. All right. Why with great patience and instruction? Because this is the way it is. Preaching the word does not guarantee a good audience or a good response. Preaching the Word does not guarantee people will show up. In fact, preaching the Word will by nature provoke defiance. It will prompt opposition. And it will bring suffering on the preacher. I mean, these are after all perilous times, Paul said back in chapter 3 verse 1. Realize this, in the last days, difficult, perilous, hard, violent times will come. Indeed, in chapter 3, verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So verse 5, Paul says, but you be sober in all things. That is, keep your head. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. The Jewish exiles were returning from Babylon. And as they came back into the land, they came... To much disappointment, I was thinking about this with the California wildfires and people being able to go back to their homes or what's left of them, and how hard that would be, how disappointing, how traumatic to walk into the ruined embers of your home. And that's what the Jewish exiles who came back from Babylon discovered. Jerusalem completely wiped out, the walls torn down, the temple gone, and what was their homes, their streets Their life completely decimated. And Psalm 126 says, When the Lord brought back the captain ones of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. And then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Oh, restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. 
Note that Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6, are a beautiful description of what it means for an evangelist to endure hardship. For us to fulfill our ministry. For us, each and every one, to be preachers of the Word. To carry this Word into the world. Man, endure hardship, so in tears. Do the work of an evangelist. Carry your bag of seed. Which, by the way, the Word is the seed. Jesus says in Luke 8, 11, The word, the seed is the word of God. And get this, even if you sow in sorrow, oh, you shall come again with a shout of joy, bringing your sheaves with you. Bringing in the sheaves. Bringing in the sheaves. Remember the old hymn? We shall come rejoicing. Bringing in the sheaves. I didn't get it when I was a kid. Why are we bringing in the sheep? That's what I thought we were singing. Bringing in the sheep. Come on, you know, bring it. Why am I rejoicing? The sheep are already part of the deal, right? No, it's the sheaves. It's the wheat of the harvest. We shall come rejoicing. As Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 2.19, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? It is, not, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? So no matter who you are, or where you live, or even what season of life you may be in, preach the Word, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul knows. The drink offering, the nesek in the Hebrew was a fourth of a hen of undiluted wine. A hen was a fourth of a hen would be equivalent of a gallon. Okay? And so they would take this gallon of wine, undiluted, and they would pour it out on the altar of sacrifice, and there it would sizzle and evaporate up in steam. Paul says, that's a picture of my life. That's me. My life is being poured out as a drink offering. My life is already evaporating, Paul says. I'm dissipating. I'm on the way out. And by the way, what is wine a picture of in the Bible? Anyone? Some are saying joy. Wine wine is a picture of joy, but biblically speaking. Blood. We take bread and juice that is representative of wine, fruit of the vine, as body and blood. Paul says, my life is a drink offering. He's saying, I'm an offering of blood. He knows what's about to happen to him. He's going to bleed out. He's going to be executed. Shortly after this letter was written, he stood before Caesar Nero. He was convicted of crimes against the state, and he was led out probably along the Ostian Way in Rome, and Paul laid his head on the chopping block, and he was executed. My life is... Poured out like a drink offering. Think about how graphic that is. But you know what's amazing? They could chop off Paul's head, but they could not silence him. And here we are 2,000 years later considering the words of the apostle who died in such a manner. Paul, Paul was ready to go. Are you? Are you, are you good to go? Are you ready In this moment, oh, Rick, I've still got some life left to live. Yeah, me too, with Him. That's the life. We're like babies in the womb, you know. Doctor's going, all right, come on out, come on out. He's got the catcher's mitt on. Come on. (laughs) 
And the baby's like, look, dude, I'm comfortable. <laughs> Food comes down. I don't have to think about that. I get to float. No, it's all good in here. Doctor's like, we got trees, we got rivers, we got oceans. It's beautiful out here. I don't know what trees, rivers, and oceans are. I'm good here. Thank you. That's exactly what we're like when it goes comes to heaven. Not yet, Jesus. Why? Paul says, I am ready. The time of my departure has come. And he looks over his shoulder at his life and ministry, and in verse 7 he says, I have fought the good fight. I finished the course. I have kept the faith. I read that, it puts a lump in my throat. Because Paul, the dear old apostle, man, he's got a heart prepared. I'm done. This is not the brash, bold, bring it on faith of, of a new or a young believer. This is the reflective, peaceful, comfort in faith of a seasoned man of God who says, I'm ready. It's time. Remember what he told Timothy in the last letter, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. He said, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And so the question is, how do we do that? You know, we've been hammered all morning about preach the Word, preach the Word, preach the Word. How do we get this kind of a fight on? How do I run such a race? How do I keep such a faith? Look at Paul. How can I be that kind of faithful follower? Well, how did the prophets? How did old Shimon? And how did Anna? Three words. By loving His appearing. That's the key to the whole thing. Verse 8. In the future, He says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Love His appearing. Paul's looking ahead now. He glances over his shoulder, fought the fight, ran the race, kept the faith. Good stuff. But but look, look. In the future is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. He says in the future. Why does he say that that if he's about to die? Because Paul understands the crown of righteousness is going to be given at the end of the age. He's going to be with Jesus, his spirit. But all those gifts, the rewards that Jesus says he has with him in his coming, well, that's at the end of the age. Paul knows that crown of righteousness is just waiting for him, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. On that day, Nero and mighty Rome may have declared Paul guilty, but all Paul sees is the righteous judge, Jesus Christ, handing down a righteous sentence with a righteous crown. Now, don't miss this. A righteous crown, he says. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown... Of righteousness. There are two words in the Bible that are translated crown. One of them is the royal crown, the, the diadema in the Greek. That's the one Jesus wears, Revelation 19. He's got the royal crown. That's not this crown. This crown is the victor's crown. It's that leafy laurel wreath given to winning athletes in the Olympic Games. And in the Greek, the word for this particular crown is Stephanos. Stephanos. 
Acts chapter 7, verse 58, when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning Stephanos. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Saul, Paul, was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. I think if you had to ask me what one person in the Bible is most like Jesus in their death, I would have to say Stephen. Because the Lord from the cross said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen, as the stones are flying, says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Paul here at the end of his his life recognizes that he's going to get the Stephanos of righteousness. I wonder if he even knew what he was saying. I kind of think maybe he did. It's an interesting thought. Saul, Paul, is now about to go to the same martyr's death and he would soon be seeing Stephen. I mean, can you even imagine? Hey, Paul. Paul turns around, Stephen's standing there. Sup? This is remarkable. Both Stephen and Paul will wear the Stephanos. Both will wear the crown of righteousness. Can you even imagine running into someone you've wronged in the way Paul wronged Stephen? Having to face him? See, that's not what we do in the world. When we have conflict with someone, we just don't call him anymore. Unfriend. <laughs> don't have to deal with them. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Any conflict you have with a brother or sister in Christ, God's going to put the two of you in a room together in heaven. <laughs> don't come out until this is all done. <laughs> no, you know what's going to happen? Crown of righteousness. Because the crown of righteousness makes it right. Makes everything right. Between us and God, between us and each other, the crown of righteousness does it. And honestly, I, I don't think, I don't think at this point that Paul is using the word Stephanos and thinking of Stephen and running back to that. It's a, it's a, an interesting connection to make. But I think Paul is thinking about one thing, and that is Jesus Christ. He is loving His appearing. The victor's crown goes to all who have loved His appearing. How do I preach the Word? Love His appearing. Because the more you love His appearing, the more you're going to preach the Word. You can't help it. When Jesus is on your mind, and that is the key to the fight, it is the key to the race, it is the key to the faith. Do you love His appearing? Are you looking to His return? Are you living... For that day. Let me just tag this on at the end. Are you living for that day? Are you stuck in this one? Like Damas. Just look at verse 10. For Damas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. For all those who love His appearing, the crown of righteousness, for those who love this present world, 
We see Demas two times on Paul's gospel team. Colossians 4.14, Philemon verse 4. But suddenly here's Demas, and clearly this man who walked with Paul, who served with Paul, who, who shared the gospel with Paul, got derailed. Why? Because he loved this present world. This guy's a believer. That should shake us in our boots. 1 John 2.15 says, Anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Matthew 13.22, The worry of the world, Jesus says, and the deceitfulness of wealth chokes the word. And it becomes unfruitful. Why do we have trouble preaching the word? Because the world is choking us. Preach the word. And if you're having trouble preaching the Word, love His appearing and it will clear your throat and you can preach the Word. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, you'll get neither. And John wrote in 1 John 3 verse 2, we know that when He appears we'll be like Him because we will see Him just as He is and everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Do you love His appearing? Does the very thought of the coming of Jesus fill you with joy? See, I think it fills Jesus with joy. I think He's on the edge of His seat. Right now, if He's sitting. With Stephen, He was standing, remember? I see the Lord standing in the right hand of the Father, Stephen cried out. And I have a sense that the further into these last days, the closer to the very end we get, the more Jesus is, if not on the edge of his seat, standing up going, Now, Father, now, are we ready? Now? So filled with excitement and joy to return, to come back when he appears the second time. And then he will fulfill what the seer Balaam rightly said I see him but not now I behold him but not near a star shall come forth from Jacob a a scepter shall rise from Israel listen he's not far off anymore his appearing is very near brothers and sisters all together we must preach the word love his appearing And when He calls, we will go. Father, thank You for Your Word to us. I pray now, Holy Spirit, seal Your Word to the hearts of Your people. I pray, Holy Spirit, cause Your Word to germinate in the hearts of those who have yet to believe. Whether it's here this morning or in any one of a number of conversations that may happen this week. May the seed of Your Word produce fruit. And then, Lord, send Your people into the harvest that we will bring in the sheaves of wheat with with rejoicing. Father, this is a command for us all. I know this. May we receive it in Jesus' name. Amen.